Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tech Talk. Today, uh, we're going to cover an area of uh, topic that we haven't covered a lot. Uh, it's going to be med tech. We're going to talk, talk about a topic in med tech, medical technology. And you'll notice we have a guest with us today. Uh, I'm very pleased to introduce Abhijit Mandel. He is a researcher at uh, Boston Children's Hospital and uh, working with various medical technologies, especially cardiac devices. And I'm, I'm actually quite interested uh, to know more about your interdisciplinary knowledge because um, we were just talking earlier and I found out you were also a mechanical engineer like both of us uh, at the yeah. start of your uh, career or at, at the end of your education rather. So uh, it's, it's really interesting to sort of find out how we all changed paths in our career and how we ended up here and how we basically input our educational knowledge into our current career. And I feel it's going to be an interesting insight into, into that world. So really pleased that you uh, agreed to join us, Abhijit, with us today and uh, looking forward to our talk. Um, so let's, uh, let's start by a little bit of introduction. So Abhijit, if you give us a little bit. Yeah. Hi. Uh, so Welcome to everyone. And I'm uh, so I'm uh, Bijit uh, Mandel. I I'm a research fellow here at uh, Boston Children's Hospital. Uh, uh, my as not mentioned, my bachelor's was in mechanical engineering. My master's was also in mechanical engineering, and then I did my PhD in uh, biomedical engineering, with focus on cardiac uh, electrophysiology and sort of uh, uh, cardiac diseases, basically. Uh, after that, I moved to Boston here uh, in Massachusetts, and, and then I'm working with a cardiac surgeon. We work with, uh, so I'm working on some certain devices uh, associated with basically cardiac and respiratory uh, diseases for treat treatment of that. So uh, one of the aspects of work here is to, is to do with cardiac imaging. Uh, we do a lot of uh, intraoperative imaging for identifying and looking at uh, tissues and things like that. I'm also working on some other technologies, uh, basically on uh, airway stents, which is uh, which again goes to trachea, a little away from the heart, but uh, still in the respiratory system or the thorax, which is where your chest, where your lungs and your heart is. So, I, so I'm doing like multiple projects like that. My, uh, yeah, so we, we study the heart, which is like the main uh, focus of the work that we do and things that are around the heart. Well, wow, thanks. That's nice. Thank you for uh, that introduction. <laughs> Amit, you, you guys know each other from beforehand, right? Yes, what... actually. So thanks, Abhijit, for joining. And uh, uh, thanks, uh, Rinath, for that uh, lovely introduction. Um, I actually know Abhijit uh, from uh, college, from uh, our university days. So we studied together. We both studied mechanical. Uh, we were in different classes, uh, but uh, we studied, uh, we did the university education for four years together in southern part of India. Uh, so yeah, we have been roommates uh, after college yeah. graduation for a couple of years before Abhijit uh, decided to move to US for his higher studies. So thanks again, Abhijit, for coming on this show. And uh, thanks again for that uh, introduction about your uh, career. So that's actually quite a pivot that you have taken from starting from mechanical engineering and moving into uh, this uh, medical field per se without a lot of medical uh, knowledge but you still manage to uh, apply your mechanical engineering uh, 
um, education into this field. So it's actually quite fascinating to um, listen to you uh, just talk about that bit uh, right now. So I think uh, for the benefit of our audience, let's start first with uh, why, why cardiac devices? Was it by chance or was it uh, uh, like an opportunity that came or uh, what, what? why did you decide to select this area of research? Uh, so, yeah, I think part of it was by chance, I guess, by the opportunity it presented. But uh, I think during my undergraduate uh, education itself, I was very interested in inter interdisciplinary fields. So if you recall, I was uh, when I was in undergrad, I was obsessed with robotics. Uh, you know, I wanted to. And then the aspect that I loved about it was it involved using mechanical uh, aspect of it. There is an electronic aspect of it. And now there is a huge computational aspect of it. And uh, my initial training when I came here for my master's, I, I tried to do a master's in robotics. Then I ended up in a project which involved some amount of robotic instrumentation, but it was for a, uh, for doing something more biomechanical, uh, I would say. So I was trying to microfabricate this device, which could roll up automatically by sensing without like crushing uh, some tissue. Uh, which uh, was sort of a long shot project, uh, which ended up not being that way. But but I got involved in more biomedical uh, stuff uh, in terms of generating cardiac tissues while I was in my grad school. And from master's, that sort of spurred me into biomedical engineering. Uh, the center where I was working was, uh, the, uh, uh, was basically for cardiac research, the CVRTI, which was Cardiovascular Training and Research Institute at, uh, at the University of Utah there. And then when I was working, uh, the work there was very bench oriented. So I was working with cell cultures and things that you do only in the lab. And uh, so I got a little bit more uh, exposure to like doctors. Some of the uh, the professors there were actually practicing medicine. They were uh, cardiologists. So my interest was more towards going more towards the clinical side and you know doing something that's more uh, contributing or directly helping patients, uh, you know? So, and the term used in the field is called bench to bedside. So, you know, you are trying to come up with these signs and techniques on the bench, and then bedside means something that you made actually ends up uh, to the patient or uh, in the clinic. So that was sort of what motivated me towards making that shift. And I, and I could see that a lot of the techniques and my engineering training I can use uh, in this uh, biomedical, in these, uh, in understanding what the disease is or diagnosing what the disease is. And, you know, in best case scenario, treating the disease. I mean, that would be like, you know, it's it's like the, the goal as a scientist, whatever you make ends up uh, helping someone. Absolutely. And one of the things um, I, I, I remember, I was talking to a PhD student in Cambridge University about four or five years ago. And this, uh, what you said kind of reminded me of that conversation. And he was basically saying that, uh, in next five to 10 years, anyone with interdisciplinary knowledge would become really successful. And, uh, um, and this was five years ago. And, you know, I, I see that in, in my career and everywhere where I look, interdisciplinary knowledge is where new innovation comes all the time. Because as soon as you have two different expertise, you have so many new opportunities, innovative ways to combine those knowledges to create something new. Uh, it's incredible how how many new ideas can come through with uh, and the more 
you know, the more different it is, in, in my opinion, the more chance of innovation there is or disrupting the market there is. Because in each of these industries, people are working in certain ways. And if you come from a different industry knowledge, you can sort of apply uh, the good sides of each of these. And uh, I feel like uh, that you have a unique advantage on, on that, uh, having, the, <laughs> having the two backgrounds. So... Um, you know, some of the medical terms you used, I know all of them because I watched Grey's Anatomy, all of the episodes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, I feel like, um, yeah, my knowledge of just uh, the, the words are quite well, but obviously when it comes to the actual application, I'll probably just not <laughs> go anywhere else. So um, uh, from that perspective, in, in terms of cardiac devices, how does you know, cardiac devices uh, differ from other kinds of devices. Uh, what what do you have to kind of specifically look at when you're dealing with that? So, uh, so it depends what yeah what the device is being used for. Uh, so there are different levels of devices here. Uh, one is just uh, monitoring things. So uh, I mean, you can think of. Uh, so I think it will be better if I approach it from. Uh, the different levels and functions of, of the heart itself. So, so uh, you know, I mean, the heart's basic function is is that it's, it serves as the circulatory pump of the body. It uh, it enables supplying basically oxygenated. It, it gathers the oxygenated blood from the lungs where the blood is oxygenated, and then it takes it and then pumps it to the rest of the rest of the body. And all organs, everything, it supplies uh, not just the oxygenated blood, but also the nutrients uh, to all the body. And, and that is what keeps rest of the bodies, uh, of the, the organs of the body functional. So that is like the primary role it, it serves. Uh, and uh, based on that, where you are uh, looking at what dysfunction, uh, you have the devices associated with, with that function. So, you know, the, uh, I think, I guess the most basic, the first thing that comes to my mind is the, uh, uh, the SpO2, the oxygen uh, oxygen saturation measurement, it's it's basically a direct uh, measure of whether your heart is doing its job of pumping oxygenated blood all the way from the heart uh, from the lungs to the heart into your finger where you uh, sort of set the SpO2, and if there are any dysfunctions in the heart, your SpO2 will directly go down. So if if it's unable to if there is mixing of the oxygenated and the deoxygenated blood in the heart, uh, your SpO2 will directly go down, which is basically an indication there is something, there's probably a hole in the heart and, you know, things are getting mixed up. Uh, so that's that's probably the first level of just diagnosis. In fact, uh, I think Amit will know, uh, he last year when, like, when, you, when the baby is born, this is like one of the first things they check if uh, if the heart is functioning properly or not. Yeah, actually, so they put uh, the same machine that we used, uh, especially during COVID, it has now uh, become very popular that uh, everyone wants to measure their blood oxygen level. So even with yeah. kids, but kids, instead of uh, using it on their hands, they normally wear it on their legs uh, because uh, it's just easier to put it on them and they constantly measure it uh, at the time of birth and uh, every every couple of hours uh, just to monitor and if everything is fine they don't need to measure it and and the other thing is whenever you go into emergency because as a um, I mean as a as an infant you tend to 
get sick quite often because you've just come into yeah. this whole new world with so many different uh, 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 biological organisms and mm-hmm. uh, you are bound to catch some kind of a disease so whenever you go to emergency the first thing that they do is they measure the temperature and then check the oxygen level of the baby because if those yeah. are stable then they can uh, check if it's an actual emergency or not otherwise they carry on with their normal diagnosis yeah uh so i mean yeah that would be i guess the first uh, first thing uh, but uh, in terms of vital signs when you think about it's uh, the the two things that come to mind is one is the blood pressure and then the other is the heart rate which is again uh, it's again uh, yeah the spo2 itself uh, the pulse oxygen meter also generates yeah uh, detects your uh, the heart rate it uses a different technology or a similar technology but uh, yeah but that's the one they they use for uh, just getting the oxygen and the pulse uh the blood pressure is like the other device i think you all uh, have seen that blood pressure monitor the the actual term is i don't know if you have heard of if you can pronounce it it's called sphygmomanometer it's it's very hard to pronounce it it took me like i remember the first lab i did when i in grad school and it took me as just a big pain just trying to remember that name and where they measure your uh, systolic and your diastolic pressure which is like again one of the fundamentals every time you go to the doctor this is the first thing they check uh and again it's again a function of how how well the heart is uh, functioning or or uh, uh uh so that's the one thing then you have the pulse heart rate monitor which is uh, again the spo2 that, the ones that you wear in the fitbit uses slightly I guess the underlying technology is the same, but uh, you know the light type is different. Uh, the SpO2 uses like red light and the IR. That's why you see those red flickering light. The uh, the ones on your Fitbit or your fitness trackers. I, I have a Fitbit uses a green light, which absorbs, uh, which is basically absorbed by the uh, oxygenated blood, and it it measures as your heart pumps the blood. the amount of blood going through your uh, your artery and vein is also changing and based on that the absorption changes the amount it absorbs and that is what they measure and then uh, that is how they detect you know what the heart rate is right okay uh, this actually reminds me of an interesting ted talk i've seen as well uh, where uh someone was trying to detect the heart rate from a video of the person so mm-hmm. based on the heartbeat uh our our color of the skin is very slightly changing which is not which is invisible to the naked eye but if you analyze the video the redness of the skin is also changing because of the way the heart is pumping the blood and it was quite interesting how you know by that kind of analysis of that video you could also get the heart rate i think that's like a, one of the one of the most um sort of um visible thing or, or visible feature in yep. in right uh, uh you know people blush if they're nervous or shy and things like that so heart is actually uh quite uh, you know the to sort of know uh, uh, how do i put this so the the know the state of the heart is actually quite easy for us to to do and even socially we try to understand it very quickly you know whether a person is nervous anxious or whatever excited so uh, i think uh, where i used to do a lot of cycling in chennai 
and uh, we used to monitor our heart rate very uh, regularly and thoroughly especially because uh, there are these different uh, zones where if you exercise at those heart rate zones then you will consume the maximum amount of fat or you will have the maximum amount of oxygen in your blood depending upon the heart rate and that's when you will be able to push yourself much harder etc etc so i think uh, it's quite uh, fascinating to see uh, this heart and lung combination we used to call it the engine so our body has this engine which is the lungs and the uh, it's like the carburetor i think and the and the <laughs> engine um, uh, where we are getting the fresh oxygen and uh, we supply it to the blood and then the heart pumps the blood to the rest of the body and it's it's just incredible so um so we've talked about the monitoring part of of uh, cardiac devices but i'm sure there i mean if we want to divide you know like categorize based on the the type of work they do so if you want a few of them do monitoring uh, but then what other kind of aspects of cardiac devices are there some of them i would imagine would be helped to in the operation theater um, oh yeah uh yeah so that is going i guess to the other extreme of it so i think uh, so uh, as i think one of the thing that uh, as amit was telling me uh, the the his his discussion topic basically the thought that come to my mind was like the the cardiopulmonary uh, bypass system that's there which is what you need during surgery uh but uh, so i mean yeah so for any cardiac surgery i guess the main machine everybody comes to mind is the heart lung machine what is called and it is used to bypass the function of the heart temporarily so they can work on the heart itself and uh, and i think that's uh, yeah so it's uh, it's basically a pump system and and the way uh, so if you're going to the or so the surgery the surgical aspect of it is the the surgeon wanting to do any kind of repair on the heart is difficult when the heart is beating and you can't and and the heart being such a vital part of your life you can't stop the heart if you stop the heart blood stops pumping reaching the organ you die basically it's uh, it's uh, it's sort of one of those uh, futile futile organs and the way they do the bypassing thing is they use a separate pump a pumping system uh, which sort of bypasses the heart uh, so the pumping is done through this cardiopulmonary bypass system basically during the while your heart is on this bypass system uh, not your heart your body is in the bypass system they use this solution called the cardioplegia uh, which is sort of a concoction of a solution with some ions particular uh, ions which basically stop reduce the basically stop the heart from beating uh, and if you uh, the the way the heart beats uh, and 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 it's basically made up of these muscles and excitable cells and what uh, what the solution does is it goes and changes the electrogenic environment of these cells in the cells which stops this heart from uh, creating the excitation so your heart actually literally during uh, once they send you on cardiopulmonary bypass the heart stops beating uh but uh, mind you the uh, the heart you know the, i think the incredible thing about the heart is it is not just supplying blood to the rest of the organs but also itself so oh, yes. the so the bypass when the heart goes in bypass it's uh, it's supplying uh, you know it's supplying blood to the heart itself at the same time it's supplying things to 
supplying blood and nutrients to the rest of the body uh, as well. So, so yeah, for cardiac open heart surgery, any kind of uh, uh, surgery that they do uh, on the heart requires, I think the main star of the show is, is this cardiopulmonary system. And if you go to a cardiac OR, it's a, it's a huge team effort. It's, it's not, I mean, there is the primary cardiothoracic surgeon who's going to actually who's trained and actually is going to operate on the heart. But then there is uh, the, anest uh, the anesthesia team, which maintains that the patient's vital systems are fine and the patient remains in the uh, in that sleepy, the, the uh, what we call the put, putting the patient down. So it uh, remains uh, in, the, in under anesthesia. And then, then you have the pump team, which controls and sees that the pump pressure is maintained at the correct uh, correct pressures, you're not overloading the heart or, or, or the body. And of course, there's the circulating nurse and all who are looking at it, uh, who are just, you know, managing uh, everything that's going on in the OR, keeping tabs of, uh, uh, of all the personnel. Uh, then we have a, each surgeon has a PA, a, a physician's assistant. So this is the person who is actually standing right next to the surgeon and handing off the equipment as the surgeon needs. There's a whole range of equipment he needs for the surgery. He or she needs for the surgery. So, um, so there's a lot of things. There's a huge team effort going on. There is, you know, during a cardiac surgeries that I have been, there are at least ten to fifteen people involved uh, during these surgeries. Uh, so yeah, it's a, it's a, it, there's a lot happening there. Uh, I, I would say, right. and and uh, Boston Children's Hospital is actually a training hospital. This is where uh, surgeons get training. So sometimes there is an additional third person who is the trainee who's standing on the other side uh, of the OR bed and uh, being trained by the by the surgeons who's giving him instructions. Wow, that's that's quite uh, interesting, Abhijit. And uh, I mean, when you were talking about it, I think, yeah, you covered that point that heart has to supply blood to itself. But uh, you see in movies that they try to give an electric shock to the heart. So what is that part? Uh, and uh, why does a heart need electric shocks to get revived? Yeah, so I think so. for that, I think I have to move a little bit, step back a bit and talk about uh, the functioning of the heart, you know. So uh, I think most of us think of heart as a pumping. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's basically a pump, biomechanical pump. Uh, the way I like to think about it, it's, you know, it's a bioelectromechanical organ. So it's got an electrical component of it as well as a mechanical component of it. The mechanical component being the pump, right? It's got uh, these chambers. It's got these valves between the chambers. There are uh, this piping structure, which is the, you know, which are the great vessels uh, and all. So it's bringing blood in, getting it into the right atrium. There's a valve that controls it. From there, it goes to the ventricle. Uh, the ventricles basically, uh, I mean, yeah, the ventricle then sends it to the, pumps it back to the lungs where it gets oxygenated, comes back through the, uh, the arteries and then uh, the pulmonary, uh, sorry, the pulmonary veins comes to the left ventricle, left artery, sorry, left atrium, then to the left ventricle, and then from there it gets pumped to the rest of the body. So that is the mechanical aspect of it. There are four chambers, uh, the left side, uh, sorry, the right side uh, gets deoxygenated blood, the left side uh, pushes oxygenated blood, deals with oxygenated blood. And uh, as you know, the atrium contract, the uh, so the pumping occurs, the contractions occur, stop, and then bottom of the heart, even though it's divided left to right. So the atria first pumped blood, 
uh, pumps in and then the ventricles contract to push blood out. And this synchrony of and the rhythm of both these uh, chambers, the levels of chambers is maintained by the uh, by the electrical or the bioelectrical system of the heart, which is which we call as the cardiac conduction system. And uh, so what happens is, uh, so your heart is made up of these excitable cells, and there are two types of excitable cells. Ones that are uh, intra, ones that need an excitation voltage. So like you need to give it a shock for it to start beating. And then there are these pacemaker cells, or uh, what is what we call as the conduction uh, conduction tissue cells, which pace on its own. So and 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 our heart has two of these pacing units. One is at the the sinus node, which is right on top of the atrium. Uh, it's sort of uh, somewhere near the uh, one of the vena cavas. It's 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 on the atrium, on the right atrium. And then there's one that sits, it's the atrioventricular node, uh, which sits between at the junction of the atrium and the uh, and the ventricles, and just over the septum where the wall is. And uh, so this SA node is basically what's shooting uh, basically these electrical uh, signals, which get transmitted across this conduction tissue, which sort of, you can think of it as a wiring that goes and excites your ventricles and atria, which when, when, when it gets excited, when you, when you pass that voltage, it contracts and then, then it repolarizes and it sort of expands. So it is this electronic, this conduction tissue or a bioelectronic aspect of it, which sort of, you know, uh, maintains this rhythm and creates these, uh, these beats and, and the contractions. So, so the defibrillator actually puts the heart back into the rhythm or does it actually starts the heart when it's sort of not beating? Cause yeah, in movies you see, you see that yeah. it's not beating and it, it, you know, you kind of shock it back to life. But I also read somewhere that it's not about beating or not beating. It's about, it kind of loses the rhythm and you kind of reset it. Exactly. Back. Right. Okay. Exactly. So you have to uh, uh, just uh, differentiate. There are two types of these devices. One is the pacemaker. So when uh, some of these hearts uh, lose this pacing, uh, have some sort of dysfunction on these pacemaker cells, and they need uh, these, uh, they are called permanent pacemakers, which basically supply the beats, This uh, the, the, the beat that the sinus node or the AV node is not able to supply, and that's what causes the beating. Uh, the defibrillators, uh, which are called ICDs, uh, which is uh, intra uh, implanted uh, cardioverter and dis uh, defibrillator, is the I think is the term, and they are exactly right. So when this electrical, sometimes when you have arrhythmias and these are like conduction issues, it's it's still a hot topic of research in trying to identify and study how these are caused uh, and all. Basically, this conduction, uh, this rhythm is somewhat disrupted, and what happens is you start getting sudden uh, spikes of uh, like, uh, I think these are called ectopic beats. They're like regions, just random beats. This rhythm gets disturbed and, and you were exactly right. The, the defibrillator basically shocks the heart when it detects such, uh, such irregularities and it just resets the conduction back. So, uh, so these patients basically, uh, yeah. So the defibrillator, what, that, what it does is basically it has a sensor which senses if there is any, you know, uh, defibrillation, any sort of arrhythmia or uh, irregular beating occurring. And when it sees that within a particular time period, it is not able to resolve this uh, defibrillation or 
or arrhythmia, it hmm. sends, it starts, begins to shock the heart artificially. Right. Okay. So we don't see the monitoring part at all. We just see the doctor just say one, two, three, clear, and then shock. <laughs> well, so yeah. So when the heart is arrested, yes, exactly. You. So that is. So that is the defibrillator you see outside. Oh, uh, right. So if a you know so uh, so I think the one of the very big uh, and uh, uh, very big industry uh, for medical devices is are these uh, implantable uh, cardio ICD devices. Right. Yeah, you you were mentioning the word pacemaker as well, and I was going to ask that we know pacemaker is like a something that you sort of put in and then live with it after you know to to support your heart, like a uh, like a man made equipment, but yes <laughs> right okay yeah that is that is quite interesting and yeah all of these devices and how they sort of interact with heart is 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 quite fascinating so we've talked about the monitoring part and then we've also now you know talked about the devices which are kind of uh the uh, in my head it's like the mid-level like the during operation and you know like making maintenance of of the heart but what about like the technology available post an operation or or after like we've done the monitoring we've done the operation or whatever uh but you know what what kind of devices are there to support or maintain the heart afterwards uh so i i need to clarify regarding the defibrillator so i think what you guys are talking about is the external defibrillator that uh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah that the doctors use like so that movies. is uh, <laughs> yeah yeah so that is different than an actual implantable uh, cardio water defibrillator. So, uh, so uh, I think we should step back a little bit uh, because I think right. uh, I, I might have just gone over multiple places. No, no, uh, I'm, I'm actually very interested to know if they, I didn't even know that there is such a thing exists. Yeah, that, I didn't uh, know there is an implantable thing. I always thought that no, there is. Movies, uh, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah so oh. you're the expert here. So, uh, well, yeah, somewhat, I guess uh, it's. Uh, 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 based on the company here so uh, so the, the the one that you shock and and that is sometimes they also use in surgery so once they arrest the heart i was telling you right they use this chemical uh, contraction that they uh, give to the heart the heart uh, sort of uh, it stays on that arrested for a while and sometimes when they have to revive the heart from beating uh, a lot of patients it just revives but sometimes they have to give a shock and then it sort of uh, starts uh, beating again so that is basically the fundamental that you just give it a shock and it resets uh, resets the heart now some patients and this is not surgical this is just uh, patients will have arrhythmias patients whose heart will suddenly start you know there will be problems with uh, with the conduction or uh, and it will suddenly start creating these random uh, electrical signals in the heart which uh, which you cannot control and and you'll feel uh, i mean yeah if the heart stops beating uh, properly you will uh, you will feel that irregularity uh, because of that so in in that what patients do is first thing uh, what the doctors will do is they would want to monitor uh, to just confirm the diagnosis that this patient needs this uh, icd is they will implant they would want to uh, monitor this event these uh, these irregular events the uh, the arrhythmia events that the patient is having because these are very random you know this is not something you go to the doctor and then it's very hard for them to reproduce so what they do is uh, there are two things uh, one uh, one is uh, what's called a holter monitor and this is something actually i went through uh, i don't have defib i i, I was uh, i had some chest pains once which was which ended up being uh, uh, which ended up being basically heartburns 
uh, which is you know if you eat something very acidic uh, it becomes and it keeps you and i was uh, scared but the doctor basically gave me uh, this whole they, they put you on this holter monitor which is basically it records your ekg continuously for a couple of days just to see if you know if it comes back or something so you have wear it you put it on your pocket there are electrodes placed on your heart the regular electrodes on two sides here and a few here and it just records your ekg for the whole day and then they see if you know if there are any irregular beats or any irregular signals uh the other and but this holder is like a huge chunk of like you know it's like a, it's like a it's like a walkman that we used to have uh, i remember uh and you have to you can't take it off because uh, so they give it to you for a day or two usually uh but if it's uh, if it's for longer if they want to record uh, for longer duration of time uh, what they do is they implant with you what's called an implantable loop recorder which is basically this really small uh, pen sized i shouldn't say pen size but many a uh, pen diameter sized device that they sort of in, inject not i shouldn't even say inject it's sort of they make a small incision on your chest a really small one and then just inject place it superficially not inside basically into your skin and then just seal it off and that has a sensor and a recorder it's called a loop recorder basically so uh, it it basically records the heart's electrical act and electrical activity it can record up to an hour it can maintain it's got a really small memory but uh, it basically if it detects senses any uh, arrhythmia or an irregular activity it starts recording it uh, it also comes with this remote or a switch that the patient has and they can sort of you know uh, keep it in their pocket or tie it uh, you know keep it around their neck and if the patient himself feels uncomfortable and he thinks some 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 sort of event is occurring he can tap on that and record that event and then uh, and then they come up come with a, i think either you can directly record a report to the doctor or it comes with a pairing device which sort of sends the the data to the uh, to the doctor so so those are for arrhythmias and and this is purely a conduction problem so like of the conduction system you know the the heart starts behaving like the electrical activity starts behaving irregularly and the way and the and the way they have they they have thought of is just shock the heart it fixes it it just resets it uh, so you know patients can be have uh, they are having arrhythmias you know they suddenly start feeling and it just shocks them and puts them back um uh, so it's, and it's by like the way the voltage computer Uh, it's like turning the computer on and off right it's sort of yeah you can think about <laughs> it like that and and the thing is uh, when they give the when they use the defibrillator as they show in the doctor subcutaneously it's like from the skin you have to give a higher voltage and that is uh, you know when you're shocking the patient at that uh, that voltage it's it's sort of uh, i mean they'll be in pain uh, you'll feel the shock Uh, but when you have the implantable defibrillator the the amount of shock is the voltage is much less and definitely not as painful uh, uh yeah so, so uh, that's Abhijit, how they do it uh, when you talk about these implantable devices so there is a way to put them in but then uh, how do you take them out do you have to go to the doctor again and they take them out what about the cell say every every device medical device will have a battery or something to power them for some time and after the power runs out they have to remove it so how does all that work yeah so that is uh, so that is one of the problems uh, yeah people with implantable uh, cardioverters or pacemakers have usually 
uh, so for pacemakers, I know a battery can last anywhere between uh, five to 10 years, uh, depending on, you know, uh, how much, uh, I mean, depending on actually uh, how much pacing, what the threshold voltage is. They're like a couple of parameters when they are setting these devices. And in terms of your defibrillators, I guess the more, uh, the problem with defibrillators is the shock is a little bit higher voltage. So uh, it uses more. So the more uh, arrhythmias, the more incidence of these arrhythmias these patient is getting, the more quickly the battery will get used. But uh, these defibrillators and pacemakers, they have, uh, I mean, they have uh, switches and alarms. And, and there are actually, uh, uh, all these devices come with uh, these uh, these remote control transmitters. So like these patients have these bedside uh, uh, I forget the word, but uh, these bedside monitors that go with these devices. So when in the end of the day, when they when they are going to bed, the device usually syncs uh, syncs the data from you know the status of the device, and that is sent to the the healthcare provider uh, via uh, yeah wirelessly. There's usually like a cell phone, a separate wireless connection for that. It's it does not go via Wi-Fi, by the way. Uh, it's a separate service. It's directly transmitted to the doctor, and uh, and that is how actually what's called uh, remote monitoring of these devices by the doctors. So if they if they see anything alarming, anything changes, they can then call the patient and make the updates. But uh, so we we actually um, our group recently, and I'm sort of finishing that study. Uh, we are trying to assess, you know. Uh, what is the cost of the uh, of maintaining these devices in patients with pacemakers and and in our case uh, because we work at children's hospital uh, so my 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 boss here is a congenital heart surgeon and some of his patients uh, who are all kids uh, they need a pacemaker at like this small age and you know the and you have to uh, uh, they have to maintain i mean the pacemaker itself you have to come up for checkups annually or biannually to see everything is all right or not. But there is a cost associated with that, right, of, of just managing this pacemaker that's in you. So the two main problems, and there are multiple problems. One of them, as you mentioned, is the battery. The battery does deplete with time. And uh, so the device, the way the pacemaker is, is it's got this, uh, it's basically, it's a, it's a small, uh, it's called a can, basically, how they call it. It's a can. It's it's the pacemaker and generator, which contains the battery and the electronic circuit. And it's got these leads, basically, that come out and are implanted either in the heart, depending on how they are being paced. So if they are, uh, the common way of pacing, uh, permanent pacing is uh, uh, what you call transvenous pacing. So what it does is basically the leads shock from uh, from the inside the heart. So the pro the procedure and and the way to do it is uh, and they uh, they basically uh, implant take the lead through uh, a transcath uh, procedure through your uh, one of your uh, arteries or not the arteries sorry one of your veins to reach. Uh, uh, it basically is sent through your a small hole is made from which uh, they introduce the lead and guide it uh, using a, uh, using a cath procedure and guide it so it goes and then it's steered to go through your right atrium uh, through the cavas into the right atrium through the uh, tricuspid valve and then it's uh, sort of uh, uh, plunged into the apex or end of the right ventricle side. 
So the cable, the lead, the wire is going all the way from your right atrium, going straight down to the apex of the heart or the bottom layer of the ventricle. And that is where they send the pulses, which sort of uh, uh, contract the, uh, well, which is what basically excites the ventricles for pumping. Uh, so that is what they do for the pacemakers. And then, then it depends, uh, there are modes of pacing. If you just need the ventricles to be paced, then only one lead is placed. If the atria also needs pacing, uh, they'll put a lead, another lead that can go into the atria, atria, right atrium as well. If dual ventricular pacing is required, another lead is sent uh, into the left ventricle. Uh, there are some complications where patients need uh, dual ventricular pacing as well. If uh, yeah, right. some pacing issues. So I have a question regarding the power of pacemaker. You said, uh, you know, the pacemaker uh, battery could last five to 10 years, right? But then again, yeah. there was another device which you said with a small incision and then that lasts only for, for, for an hour. But they're both very small devices. Why can't the, the, the same kind? I mean, does it require more power? Is that why it lasts less time? No, so first of all, the devices are very differently sized. So uh, your pacemaker, uh, the size would be, I would say, somewhat smaller than your mouse. It's, oh, uh, it's, it's quite yeah, it's thick. it's not as thick. It's a thinner, it's a thin device because uh, it just stays under uh, under your skin here. So this this but, makes me think of another way. So why um can it? Is there a way? So I'm just thinking of ways to not uh, have to you know, replace it at all after five or 10 years. So is there a way like when, when the heart is pumping the blood, that's like a flow of blood is going, can it like generate, uh, char charge itself <laughs> with, with some uh, sort of mechanical device, for example. Uh, so it, it, it never requires, uh, replacing after five. Well, uh, yeah, so there is research going on that there is no commercial device that I know of. Uh, but, uh, so the way, way it works is the, the pacemaker itself is not implanted on your heart. The the battery and the generator stay somewhere away from your heart. And okay. it's actually right below, I think the left side, uh, just below, I think uh, it's called the percutin. I forget the muscle's name, but it's right on top of your chest here somewhere where right. they put it down there. It stays safe there. And it's just this lead, I mean, which is basically a wire which is mm -hmm. going and and pacing, giving the shocks. So uh, yeah, it's an interesting thought. I think people are have are, are working on that concept, but uh, there is no uh, so far uh, mm -hmm. nothing uh, viable has come up. And uh, so I was telling the I mean earlier when I was saying the battery replacement thing, this is more of a pediatric patient problem for children because you know they have just started their lives, they have to live uh, for decades now. So for them, this is a big problem. But if you look at Usually, pa patients who get pacemakers are really old people, elderly people, and for them, you know, they are not uh, a very if they are not very uh, mobile or you know not into very high intensity workout or or any sort of exercise. Uh, yeah, very high uh, cardio lifestyle is not there. Their pacemakers will probably end up maybe uh, yeah eight to ten years is a reasonable time for for them. But it's it's I think it's it's basically depending on the battery technology, right? So I think now as battery technology is condensing more, 
you have electric cars which can go much longer. And and in terms of pacemakers, in fact, I think Medtronic has one of these really small pacemakers they have invented. Uh, I'm not sure if it's still getting implanted or not, which uh, which gets rid of the whole leads. Uh, you know, right now it's like the scan with this long wire that goes all the way through all your veins uh, and then enters the... Uh, the atrium and then through the valve by the way this lead actually touches the valves so in fact uh, this lead can cause eventually one of the complications uh, is it can cause uh, blockage of the valves or dysfunction of the valves over time because you know the valve completely is always hitting this uh, uh, this wire which is not supposed to be there so they have come up with this really small device, which is, I think, a couple of centimeters long uh, and maybe comparable to the loop recorder, even smaller than the loop recorder, which can be implanted right at that uh, that junction at the end where in the in the ventricle, in the end when the near the apex. So you don't need this whole long lead that's going and sitting there. But it's again, uh, it's uh, it's still not something that's. Uh, I guess uh, I'm not sure if maybe it's still in the trial phases. I'm not aware of it being come again uh, available to patients uh, as of now. Uh, but yeah. So uh, right. Abhijit, uh, like uh, you mentioned about the arrhythmia and uh, like uh, diagnosing and uh, monitoring them inside the body and outside the body by giving them a shock but that is mostly to do with the electrical aspect of the heart what about the yep. mechanical aspect like suppose there is a pressure drop uh, because of a hole in the heart or the oxygen and the uh, the oxygenated and the de and the deoxygenated blood uh, are getting mixed more so for those kind of like mechanical issues what what kind of devices are then used inside the body? Say a lot of people have these blocked arteries. What do what what kind of devices are used to fix those kind of uh, cardiac issues? So yeah, blocked arteries. I think it's like the most common and uh, common form of disease. It's called the what uh, the coronary artery disease. Uh, what's what's it called as it's called? So and and uh, what are the so the coronary arteries are basically the arteries that are coming from the aorta and basically giving blood to the heart itself. And if those get blocked, your heart will stop functioning and, you know, it'll, uh, uh, your your heart tissue will stop getting the nutrients and the oxygenated blood for it to function itself. Uh, there are mainly two main procedures at all, you know, one is the angioplasty, which is again a transcatheter procedure uh, where you don't need to do surgery. All you do is you get access to the uh, to the artery from uh, one of the femoral arteries on your leg and you pass uh, what you do is you basically send a balloon there uh, to the blocked region and you inflate the balloon and try to see if it clears the blockage or not if uh, so first they try what's called the angioplasty which is just go send the balloon uh, expand the balloon and see if it unblocks. Uh, Does it not sort of burst the artery? But because if you're expanding the balloon, would it not like reach the limit of the artery? <laughs> yeah. So no. there's that. No. So that's why it's it's not a huge balloon. It's uh, the balloon size. They have sizes of different balloons. So you pick an appropriately sized balloon and then uh, and all this is done via and under x-ray so they are doing this radio in this uh, uh, through uh, through x-ray they can see where the balloon is moving uh, in fact before uh, even they go into the balloon uh, the way they detect these blockages by injecting uh, radio opaque dyes so you can ah, they yes. go to this place 
uh, inject this dye through the x-ray they can see you know if there is a blockage there or not mm -hmm. and in the same way they will then remove that uh, sort of guide the catheter there uh, send the balloon try to expand the yeah it's a very small balloon and that's why uh, uh, the balloon always does not work. So, and that is when uh, you know it's the balloon will expand, but the blockage will not clear. So, right. So, uh, I mean, will... that makes me think. What happens if um, it's it's just just from a completely different perspective outside of <laughs> medtech? Maybe a very stupid yeah. question, but what happens if you just make the make the patient like do physical exercise or run? So the blood flow is the pressure is so much that you don't even need the balloon. It just forces through the block whatever is blocking the artery. Yeah, I, I don't think that works. In fact, uh, once, I mean, the, the, the blockage, the, the nature of the blockage, uh, the way it is, you know, it's, it's basically build up fat and cholesterol. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, that's what you hear. So it, it's sort of inbuilt in the tissue. And uh, it might, uh, yeah, I, I don't think the coronaries will, will develop that much of pressure because the, these are like the coronary arteries are really small there. So, I don't think that is a viable way of doing it. It's uh, uh, what it's doing is, yeah, the the pressure increases, of course, when you uh, when you are doing these exercise, when you are doing exercise, but it's not enough to, yeah, uh, sort of. Uh, and thing is, uh, yeah, not enough to clear the blockage. And also, when you are, by the way, when you are doing the exercises, you're also increasing the load of your heart, which if it is blocked the artery, you know, the coronary artery blockage will stop blood from going into the heart and oh. reaching that limit itself. So, you know, it, it's somewhat like a, a situation. Yeah. And, and, and in fact, that's why, you know, when uh, the first symptoms of these blockage are uh, patients feeling dizzy or having uh, pain when they do somewhat, you know, climbing steps, exercises that require slightly more uh, uh, cardio, which is more cardio intensive, I guess. So I think the right. I think the primary thing I remember uh, they tell us when you're climbing steps. Mm. So you know it requires they start feeling, or when they're trying to walk briskly, they will see uh, they'll they'll get the pain on the left hand side or left arm or the or the back. So right. so that is not a viable way. Uh, I don't think there are any drugs uh, there as of now. The, the main treatment doctors give is they give you blood thinners so the blood will you know flow more easily uh, and, and that's kind of the treatment they uh, yeah even after the stenting they, they place the stent uh, the stent expands and sort of clears it up uh, and then the stent basically gets embedded in that region and and that's what uh, sort of maintains the patency uh, it it just happens that it yeah it, it uh, the and if even that, if, even if that gets blocked, then you have the cardiopulmonary bypass, uh, what is called graft system. So where uh, they take a vein from your leg and then they bypass that particular coronary artery surgically. So you have an open heart surgery. They sort of sew in the pipe or sorry, the vein, the new vein, put it in the region around the block, and then and that that sort of works. Uh, yeah, clears out the blocked area because uh, it will, if you don't treat that, the heart itself will stop getting uh, oxygenated or uh, the oxygenated blood or the nutrients and that part of the heart will fail. So, and, yeah, so you don't want would, that. What happens to the to the leg <laughs> without, without that part? <laughs> uh, well, the leg heals <laughs> eventually. <laughs> 
it heals uh, but uh, it's uh, you know I, so one of the things i, I noticed and uh, being in the clinical environment is you know doctors have to assess you know which is the best bad option for you so you know which which option is you know here uh, which will not uh, you know uh, so le- your, your your leg will hurt for a bit definitely but on the bigger side you know the bigger uh, risk of your heart functioning is is like uh, is completely uh, yeah you, you your heart will function and the rest of your body will function because of that so so they have to pick uh, and that's how they outweigh in fact uh, you might have heard like in some of these cancer patients uh, not heart like you know when they are giving chemo like this is something that comes up uh, they assess what the quality of life of treatment would be because sometimes what happens is you know yeah you're alive you're getting this treatment but you know your life is just miserable just because you're always in pain so uh, and this is something doctors have to judge and discuss with their patients you know whether whether they should uh, go with the treatment but the patient's life is just terrible or just leave the patient as it is but uh, yeah uh, it's something <laughs> I've seen doctors here discuss. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. So, Abhijit, uh, so we discussed the aspect about blocked arteries. What about like uh, the incorrect mixing of blood, oxygenated, deoxygenated, and then uh, say uh, you you talked about congenital, which is basically birth defects inside the heart. So when you have yeah. a birth defect inside the heart, maybe an incorrect, maybe a chamber is not there. maybe there is a hole in the heart what what happens to those kind of uh, problems and how they are fixed by those cardiac devices so uh, so congenital uh, the, the field is called congenital heart disease so it's basically children who are born with defective hearts and and normally usually uh, i shouldn't say normally the majority of these defects are structural defects uh there is also congenitally complete heart block which is uh, which is a conduction defect where uh, there is no conduction but usually uh, it's uh, some sort of uh, structural defect it could be associated with the valves or uh, that could be associated with uh, i think the most common ones are associated with the septum where you know so the septum is the wall that uh, divides your uh, left and right uh, side of the heart and uh, because your right side carries deoxygenated blood the left side carries oxygenated blood uh and in terms of uh, so congenital heart disease itself sort of is divided into what's called cyanotic and non-cyanotic disease uh so cyanotic means like there is severe problem of uh, mixing of the blood deoxygenated and oxygenated blood and uh, what do you call you know it has to be treated immediately because if you don't uh, your body you know when you are a baby you, your circulation is very important for your development so and 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 if your uh, body is unable if you are unable to send oxygenated blood to all the different parts of your body you are, you'll not be able to yeah it will affect your growth basically and you will not survive uh, some of these patients actually if they are if our doctors don't go and surgically intervene and do some sort of uh, palliative surgery which sort of temporarily fixes the problem uh, a child i mean a child can like you know will not survive like 7 or 8 days even because uh, you know the the organs are not getting the nutrients it's it's just fatal the condition could be fatal uh the more simpler ones are the septal defects uh, so there is the atrial septal defect so there is a hole in the atrial walls so there is somewhat slight mixing between the between the atrias usually uh, uh that is something that's not required uh, 
immediate surgery. Uh, the the most common way of these septal defects is is through surgery, where uh, the I mean the the patient is put on the table. We put the they will arrest the heart, go in uh, and then patch it up with a uh, with what we call uh, some sort of tissue not tissue. It's grafts. Usually there are standard commercial grafts that are available or uh, they actually use uh, what I've seen here in children's they use is uh, they use the pericardial sac material. So so if you know the heart actually sits is in, in uh, engulfed in this uh, in this pericardium. It's a bag. It's basically a sac in which your heart is. So when they operate, they actually have to first cut open the sac and then they reach the heart. So they use this sac material itself. They will cut out a pattern based on the holes, the way the hole is, and they just go there and just suture it in that hole. And what happens is when they suture it back up, the heart back pump, uh, becomes, uh, you know, it's it's uh, starts to pump back. Eventually, uh, you know, it's just fibrous tissue grows over that patch. So it just, and which is like the nature of the body, you know, any any foreign body you put in the body, eventually it'll send some sort of foreign body response is to go and cover it up with fibrous tissue. So it just uh, covers it up and then uh, the patient, yeah, will live. Uh, I mean, the, there is no mixing of the blood. Uh, there are a couple of transcath devices. Instead of going through surgery, there are a couple of devices for closing these holes as well, where, uh, you know, same cath route, they will take go from the femoral or one of the other arteries and get into the heart's atrium. Uh, and then uh, usually I think it's used for uh, atrial septal defects. The If the hole is in the ventricle, it's a little bit more uh, difficult to reach and do these procedures. So they have to do surgeries. Uh, I don't I, I don't recall anyone you doing for ventricular septal defects, but uh, so they go and uh, yeah, so the it basically goes, there's uh, the, the device is sent in and navigated to go towards the atrial walls. So it goes through that, uh, through the hole in the atrium, sort of creates this, expand. it expands and creates this slight wall. It's pulled back and then sort of on the backside, it creates another wall and it contracts and sort of closes the hole from both sides. So uh, that is the most common, but there are not many devices. It's, it's uh, so far as I know, it's still, this is the only device I've heard of. Uh, or I have seen, but uh, again, because I'm I work with a surgeon, I've seen him mostly do surgeries and do these uh, repairs, and and I remember uh, so from just from the beginning of the podcast when uh, uh, when you mentioned about the color of the skin, right? So uh, so this is one of the big uh, one of the uh, the the cyanotic uh, diseases. It's uh, it's also like commonly known as blue baby syndrome. I don't know if you have heard. So basically what happens is because the blood that is uh, the the body is not getting oxygenated blood and you guys know deoxygenated blood is actually slightly bluish. Your so the baby is basically the skin turns blue. And uh, and that is yeah because because of the color of the blood is not uh, the blood is not going the red blood the oxygenated blood is not going everywhere. So, uh, so I think uh, recently one of uh, my, my wife, she knows a mother and whose uh, baby had to be taken to the hospital because she actually turned blue. Uh, she oh. has asthma, genetic. So right mm -hmm. from birth, she has asthma and uh, she, I think, yeah, she. So because of that, uh, her body was not getting enough oxygen 
and mm-hmm. uh, so it's not related directly to the heart but just because you're not getting enough oxygen you, the you start turning uh, blue so they had to give her like the inhaler so to uh, fix this problem but yeah it's uh, pretty scary actually for to see your own child going through so much pain and at such a i mean you think that okay when someone is born they're perfect and everything will be fine if they are healthy they'll heal quickly they'll recover but then when you see and hear about all these uh, diseases and genetic defects then you start worrying quite a lot yeah yeah and especially like the cyanotic uh, congenital heart disease which are considered complex uh, the thing is i mean uh, i think the, the most basic way of thinking is you know uh, and as i was taught in our school is the size of your heart is considered the size of your fist yes and uh, you know think about the surgeon's complex uh, surgeon's uh, ability here like you know he has to uh, i mean for a kid how small i mean it's like a smaller than a strawberry shape yeah and uh, size and and the surgeon has to figure out how how to go and correct these structural uh, defects so i think one of the uh, i don't think so in 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 these uh, more severe uh, congenital heart diseases one of the uh, approaches is to do s- surgeries in stages so they can actually do uh, because one of the big problems here also is that the heart is continuously growing right now right the baby is born the first 10 year i mean basically from year 1 to year 20 your heart is uh, keeps growing basically and in in kids especially the rate is much faster for the first yes. 10 to 15 years so any sort of uh, you cannot you know you don't have the option of implanting any device at that age because you have to account for the growth of the heart uh, itself and especially for these cyanotic babies uh, with cyanotic congenital heart diseases uh, they have to what they essentially do is uh, and in the most uh, simplistic term is they change the they modify the plumbing a bit uh, of the heart so that you know uh, they are bypassing uh, so i guess the 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 strategy is called a palliative uh, approach so what they do is they are not exactly curing the heart disease but they have made some modifications so that the body still gets the whole uh, uh, the blood uh, the the oxygenated blood is sort of uh, transported to the heart everywhere so they will make change uh, make changes to the way the arteries are placed and you know uh, so so the blood is supplied and the baby keeps growing and you know the child is uh, growing and then once he has uh, like grown to like 4 or 5 years as is an appropriate size for them to conduct a surgery they will then go again the child will again have to be brought back and then they will make further modifications uh, to the heart and then so that for the next few years the child can again grow so uh, so yeah it's it's sort of i mean from an engineering aspect you know you have to think uh, this biomedical engineering you know it's 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 come up more in the last 15 to 20 years i i would say like maybe 10 to 15 years uh but like before this it was also these doctors who were doing all this engineering trying to figure out you know how to uh, get these uh, get these patients to uh, live off by just changing the plumbing or mechanical aspects so the pacemaker and the uh, defibrillators these were again uh, devices that were discovered by cardiac surgeons uh, the guy uh, i forget his name but i think walter lilley he comes to mind he's one of the pioneering heart surgeons 
uh, under whom uh, well who have uh, yeah uh, who developed this bypass system they were competing uh, doctors and all but yeah uh, I, I would also like to just mention a lot of these the, the modern cardiac surgery techniques, especially like the ones that are done in adults, have have been developed by actually congenital heart surgeons, surgeons who have been working on kids, uh, trying to fix uh, these congenital heart defects. So the whole uh, cardiopulmonary bypass and the pacemakers were all originally developed to treat children first, but I mean the market size was much smaller, so it's uh, you know it's. Uh, it's all gone into a, for adults, but yeah. But uh, this right. is so fascinating, right, <laughs> Renat? What do you think? <laughs> no, this is. Um, I mean, I'm amazed that you know what you get to see as you know as as part of your work. I mean, it's such a like a critical, um, you know, uh, life altering situation that you are experiencing for other people every day, and it must be really rewarding for you to sort of experience and be a part of that as well. And obviously, to working towards something to improve, uh, you know, the the overall outcome uh, in future. So, tell us a little bit before we finish. But I, I am curious to know a little bit more about your uh, current research that you're working on and what are you trying to achieve. So, uh, so I'll tell you one of the projects that I'm uh, currently uh, uh, involved in, and and which actually gets me some clinical exposure. Where into the OR, uh, which is to do with uh, intraoperative uh, conduction tissue identification. So as I mentioned, so my 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 PI here, Dr. Kasa, he's a cardiothoracic surgeon who goes uh, and corrects these uh, surgical correct surgically corrects these congenital heart defects. So one of the problems uh, associated, you know, with these surgeries is uh, is damage to the conduction tissue, the you know the electrical system of the heart. And one of the big problems is, you know, you sort of know where the conduction tissue is in normal hearts, but you have very little, I mean, you only know approx you know very little about where the conduction tissue is going to be in defective hearts. And, and as they are, and the thing is, uh, some of the regions where they actually do these repairs, they, uh, they end up, uh, the conduction tissue sort of ends up being close to that region. So when they go to fix something like patch things up, apply suture or cut things, uh, they end up damaging the conduction system. And what happens is once uh, if they damage it, uh, they have to, the, these patients basically uh, end up needing pacemakers uh, basically for their entire life. And it's, it's a, and it's a huge, there's a huge cost associated with, you know, managing this, this living with pacemakers. And then it's a big, uh, you know, problem for this kid as well, you know, living with a pacemaker, managing it uh, with it. So what I work on right now is we, uh, we do intraoperative imaging. Mostly what, what we use is, uh, what we, uh, we use intraoperative microscopy basically. I would say. Uh, so what we are using is, is what's called a fiber optic confocal microscope. So let me just break that down about. Uh, <laughs> so when you think about a microscope, right, you think about these objectives, huge objectives. There is a table. You're looking at it from, you know, with the eyepiece and all. Uh, so fiber optic confocal microscopy is basically, you can think about a fiber optic cable, right? It's a thin five, six mm cable. Uh, so it's basically... Uh, a microscope at the end of a thin fiber optic, which you can use your hand, maneuver it, and use it during surgery to look at microscopic structures. 
So, uh, so you know, you can do live microscopy while you are doing surgery, uh, essentially. And so what we are trying to do here is, uh, and, and, and this, the story, the way it goes is, uh, part of it was developed on the bench by some of my colleagues, uh, my colleagues in grad school, who found out that the conduction tissue resembles a certain, has a certain type of a tissue architecture uh, compared to your regular heart, uh, cardiomyocyte uh, architecture. So we are basically trying to translate this technique of using this fiber optic confocal microscope towards identifying where the conduction tissue is when, they, when the surgeon is operating. And if we identify correctly where it is, we avoid. So yeah, basically we have this microscope. We have this microscopic knowledge of uh, the microscopic structure of the conduction tissue, which sort of lies right below the walls of uh, septum, and, and you know it's called the epi epicardium, which is the layer of the heart, the top, and just enough uh, depth that we can uh, go and image below the tissue enough from the top superficially and identify these structures. So for the surgeon, this is of great value. Like, you know, if you know where this uh, sensitive tissue is, which if you damage can cause this additional problem for this patient, you know, you can then avoid and that particular region and, you know, sort of make the strategy of the repair in such a way that you don't uh, perform that surgery. So, and then sort of it reduces one of the uh, the problems of, for the patients after the surgery. So we are doing, uh, so we were doing, I was involved in this trial uh, where we would identify and try to see in these patients and then uh, see if these patients end up with any conduction problems. So a lot of my uh, work uh, or part of my work is basically, you know, moving these technologies into the clinic. Uh, an aspect of it, which is, you know, I, I would say sort of motivates me here. Uh, you actually get to see these technologies being used and sort of avoid uh, uh, avoid conduction tissue damage okay. uh, the damage to uh, to to the patients. Uh, so I was involved in that trial, uh, and then we do some animal. So uh, any sort of medical device uh, development, by the way, uh, is always started with a small animal model in rats. Then you move to a large animal model, which is you know it could be pigs or sheep and then they move to humans. So in this project, the rat aspect, the small benchtop, small animal aspect of it was done by one of my colleagues, uh, grad students. And then I was involved in doing these larger animal studies and then uh, and then the clinical trial in the patient. So I would basically go and help uh, set up the device in the OR and then it's a microscopy image. Uh, so I would actually interpret sometimes help interpretation of these images and you know, what is conduction and what is not. And then the surgeon would confirm and decide uh, accordingly, you know, whether he wants to operate here or, you know, make some changes uh, to the operation or not, or modify where he wants to operate. So yeah, that was uh, interesting for me. Yeah, uh, I, I had never been to an OR like that, and 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 just to get to see all that that was uh, that was sort of amazing, I would say. Wow, no, that that does sound really critical work as well as quite amazing um, to to be part of it and contributing to it. I have one last question for you, Abhijit, uh, before oh, we sure. finish, and that is related to stem cell research. So mm -hmm. uh, I mean, there are all these congenital issues. Um, with respect to the heart, 
uh, and there is a lot of research going in the stem cell uh, world where uh, you want to create any cell from a stem cell so uh, are there any um, I, mean, I mean areas of active research going on that you are aware of uh, that can help with these congenital heart diseases with respect to stem cells uh that is i'm not aware of uh, any uh, yeah not with respect to congenital heart diseases so the problem with congenital heart diseases it's it's more because of uh, during development issue i mean fetus during the development of the fetus yeah okay so some of the you know so the thing is all the congenital heart diseases we don't know how these are caused some of them are genetical uh, of you know some of them are associated associated with certain drug use so uh, i think some of the yeah if if uh, if the mother does drugs a certain uh, exposed to certain drugs or they do some drugs there is uh, some of those defects associated with that uh but stem cell uh, i think it's mostly stem cells have mostly been used for therapies okay uh, and and what we deal with here in congenital heart disease is more uh, i mean it's it's more a structural defect it's already there uh, and the only way to or the most viable way of is to go and surgically fix them uh so yeah it's uh, i i'm not aware of any yeah direct stem cell therapy with congenital heart disease yet but uh, we'll have to take a look okay no uh, thank you so much again i think uh, we had uh, we have covered lots of aspects uh, today so i just wanted to summarize what we have uh, talked about today uh, i hope i can do justice because you've spoken quite a lot about various things i think we started about uh, what the heart is the different chambers what its function is we talked about the mechanical aspect and the electrical aspect of the heart then we talked about the monitoring like how do you monitor the blood oxygen level the pressure the uh, the heart uh, pulse or the beat uh, the heartbeat then we talked about the uh, various uh, electrical issues that comes with the heart like arrhythmia and then how do we uh, treat them using different types of devices and then we talked about the different mechanical issues uh, which is related to the uh, blockage of an artery or the mixing of the uh, oxygenated and deoxygenated blood or uh, there are some other heart defects and uh, so finally we <sighs> covered about the congenital heart diseases so kids who are born with heart uh, defects and then uh, the surgeons that require and uh, i think the last bit was uh, your area of research so i think it was a quite comprehensive talk uh, abhijit and uh, thank you so much for your time today it was a real pleasure talking to you and uh, i hope our audience has found a lot of useful information from this talk yes oh, yeah thanks. absolutely and uh, thank you very much abhijit again from myself i feel like we've asked you so many questions and made you talk a lot but uh, hopefully you enjoyed the conversation as well uh, to have <laughs> keen listeners and i'm hope uh, i'm sure our audience is also um, keenly sort of enjoyed this talk and if you guys have any questions uh, please reach out to us and we can also direct the questions uh to abhijit if uh, if if uh necessary so yes please uh, do reach out or actually also share uh with your uh, uh relatives and loved ones someone might be who is interested in in medical uh, medicine or medical technology etc cetera, etc cetera. so i i feel like there is a good insight or good look into the life of uh a a, a a person working 
fearlessly in the medical industry and you know generating a lot of value um thanks again abhijit once more and uh, uh uh audience we look forward to coming back with you again next week with another episode until then thank you very much bye everyone bye thank you